As I was going through this message, I encountered this story by Dave Ramsey, and it's probably an untrue story as he tells it, but it involved President H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush, who were actually in their presidential limo, and they were riding through the countryside one day, and they uh, were in need of gas, so they asked the, their driver to pull over, and as they pulled over and the driver got out of the car, she, Barbara Bush looked out the window and she noticed the attendant, and excitedly she opened the door, jumped out of the car, ran to the attendant, threw her arms around him, gave him a big hug and uh, started to talk for several minutes and then got back in the car and George H.W. Bush, the president, looked at her and said, Barbara, who was that? She goes, can you believe that? That was my high school boyfriend. That was my high school boyfriend. And he goes, wow, isn't it amazing to think that you could have been married to him and you would be a, uh, a gas attendant's wife and instead you married me, the president of the United States and the most powerful man in the world. And she laughed and said to herself, she looked at George and she said, George, honey... She goes, if I would have married him, he would have been the president of the United States. (laughs) So the point of that is, and Barbara didn't lack for an understanding of her abilities, but she could build someone up, and she could help make them and mold them. And it's true that many of us, we are the product of the words that have been said about us. Uh, For those who believed in us or didn't believe in us, many of us understand what it's like to be inspired by words, to be be, uh, just made alive, to go beyond and challenge to do greater and wonderful things. But we also know what it's like to be torn down, to have words scar us. We all, we all bear these scars upon our souls of words that hurt, words of a parent, words of a spouse, words of a teacher, words of a coach that have stuck with us, that have molded us. And in the deepest and loneliest times of our lives, those words find their way to condemn us. And we have to deal with that. James knew the power of words. He understood the power of speech. The Bible talks a great deal about our speech and the power of our words, and not just speech. And I wanted to take it beyond just speech. You know, it talks about the tongue. I believe it's also representative of the greater words that we have spoken about us or even written about us. Because today in our disembodied world where we have an online presence, we're not always speaking things, but we are posting statuses of different things. And even those things can scar us, can wound us, to wreck us. And James brings us back to recover an understanding of the power of our words and how we are to use our tongues for the glory of God and how we need to bridle this restless evil that's full of poison, as James says, because the tongue is powerful. As the children saying, as we, many of us who grew up in the United States learn, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt me. Isn't really true. Because words do hurt. And, and all of us, it's amazing to me. We go to, uh, we go to school, we learn about the, the language, we learn different skills, we perhaps go off to college or, and, or maybe even a, a technical school, we learn all these different skills, how to do different things. But the one skill that we all need is how to use our words and deal with people. And it's something that our educational system has largely failed us. And how to interact with people. I was reading a statistic recently that was uh, one man was talking about going into certain um, uh, careers. And he said, it's interesting that the majority of the skills that we learned only have a, can fill a portion of what that job really requires And if you ask the employer, they said, yes, we want them to be competent in that, but we need them to be able to interact with the people around them. 
And we know that is what it's like to work with people, to go to school with people, to, to interact with that group that, in which we find ourselves, that social uh, peer group that we interact with day in and day out. And we know the power of their words. And James is calling us to come back to really rethink our words and the power of them and how we might harness them for the glory of God because each one of us has power in our words to heal or hurt, to build up or tear down. And so we, not, we must learn to, to harness this, to subdue it, to direct it for the glory of God. So I invite you to join in with me as we um, walk through this passage together today. But before we do, let's pause for and ask God by his spirit to speak to us and show us what he has for us today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are once again reminded of your glory. We are reminded how sinful we are when we think about our words. Lord, help us not to point the finger at those who have scarred us or hurt us. But help us look in the mirror at ourselves to see what our words have done in the lives of others. And help us to place every aspect, every fiber of our being under your sovereignty. And to bridle this this very small but powerful instrument that you've given us. We might use it to truly further your kingdom so that it might form in the hearts of men and women. So be with us, draw us near to yourself, convict us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in James chapter 3. We're starting off, and James is speaking to remember this group that had been in it and uh, were dispersed over the known world at that time. Many of them undoubtedly had suffered great shame and loss, loss of reputation, loss of status within the community. Some had lost businesses, been separated from family. And now I think many of them are trying to recover a little bit of that status. And James is issuing a warning to them in James chapter 3, verse 1. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Don't do this for status sake. Uh, I've seen this within several cultures. People want to go into the ministry, become teachers, that people look at them, and then they, they, they want this position of authority. And James is giving a very clear warning here. He says, my brothers, for you know that we who teach, and he puts himself in that category, will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. He addresses it, first of all, by just understanding what it means to be a teacher. He's laying down some truth. Those who want to be teachers need to think it through because they will be responsible for, be, for teaching God's people, which means that they will be judged with more intensity. It's one thing to be ignorant of something, but it's something totally different if you know something and don't teach it correctly. Ezekiel's a great example here for all teachers. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 33, God talks to the prophet Ezekiel and tells him about the watchman of the city. And a watchman is something that uh, not very familiar in our terminology in our day and age, but a watchman would be put on the city gates or the city walls to watch for possible invaders or enemies that would be approaching. And then they would blow a trumpet that would warn the citizens to mobilize so that they could protect themselves from this oncoming invasion. And he says to them, 
uh, God tells him that he is to be Israel's watchman, that he is to decree to God's people to watch out for what their lives are, what they're going to. And he's to, in other words, tell about what God has told him. And he says this, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. See, what's he saying there? He's saying that just as Ezekiel was responsible to teach everything he had heard from God, so too are we as teachers and preachers to teach the full counsel of God's word and not gloss over it. We don't just pick the parts we like and not the parts we don't like. It has to, condemn, it has to be over all of us. And if we were just focused on the, the, par, the, per, excuse me, the parts we like, we would never be truly transformed. We can't gloss over it. We teach the good and the bad. Our job's not to build great crowds, but to be faithful and teach what he has given us. God's word is powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword, and cuts to the core of our being. We preach God's truth no matter what. As Jeremiah said to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, he says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. He had to let it loose. His words do burn within us, and we must let them out, but we also must make sure that we heed the words that Paul wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We cannot be haphazard with God's word, but must study it and be careful how we teach it, because we who teach it will be judged more strictly. But we do not think that this passage only applies, we can't think that this passage only applies to teachers. I mean, there is a bit more of an influence that's there. See, James reveals to us what, that our words are actually a danger for everyone. He's saying that the words that the teachers sp- speak will actually be over all the people as well. So we can draw another principle from that that have to understand what we teach, what we say, what we do. That our words can be dangerous in what we say to other people. Because they, have the, they truly do have the power to heal and to harm, to scar and to build up. And Jesus talks about our words in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 through 37. And this is a sobering, matter of fact, it's a jolting passage. He says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's speaking to the Pharisees. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance, this is the part I want you to really see here. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It flows out of the heart. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. He says, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, and this is the part that freaks me out. It should freak you out too, because it really freaks me out. Maybe it's because I'm a teacher. But he says this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That should freak you out. Think about all the things that you've said in your life. Words that you've just said in passing, swearing, saying Lord's name in vain, 
lies you've told, F-bombs you've dropped just to be funny, all these things. He's saying that these are careless words. God's paying attention to every word because it's by our words that we show the reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ. When he's saying it's by your words you will be justified, that's going to show my our word that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is the Lord, believe in our heart that God raised from him from the dead, we will be saved. That's the justification that we have, but it's by our words we'll be condemned and we're showing by the reality of our lives if our relationship with God is real or not. One of the things that's really shocking me now is just this uh, kind of laissez-faire attitude that I've seen with Christians in, revolves, in, in reference to their mouths. They have no problem swearing. That's not, that's not the way that God wants it to be. That's not how God wants us to be. Not coarse joking, not telling dirty jokes, not gossiping about other people, not being slanderous, trying to bring other people down. God wants us to be, our speech to be seasoned with salt, to be a blessing to those around us. We have to be careful of the words that we speak what we say, the words we use. But let's get back to our text in James. He says, for we all stumble. He doesn't just say them. We all stumble. Every single person we know struggles with controlling their tongue and the words that we use. Now, some people have a, they may not be great speakers, but I guarantee they're using a lot of words in, one, in some way, shape, or form. We all struggle in this. It doesn't matter if they're a mute or not. We're all struggling with the attitudes of our heart, what we want to say or communicate to other people. And he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his old body. He's basically saying there, it's a a rhetorical thing that he's saying, that here, he's a perfect man. In other words, there is no such thing. No one can control themselves perfectly when it comes to their words. Words are a problem for us all. Nobody in this room is exempt. We stumble in what we say. Knowing this, we can see that our words are very problematic we have to be careful about it. The older that I get, the more, the more true that I see this is and how our words affect people. Just the other day, my wife said, you've got to be careful in what you say and how you say it because everyone, when they hear your words and what you say and what you do, they react. And if I say something to one of my children, if I say something to someone at church, I, I can send them in a trajectory. And you can too. You do this with the people that you influence each and every day. Think about parents. Think about what you say to your children. Think about what you've said or what has been said to you and the scars upon your own soul. If someone says that you were worthless. I was reading another uh, book the other day where this one young woman was hearing, uh, was actually at Aldi, and she was hearing the mother continually talk down to her son, saying he was stupid. And this girl was so disturbed, she heard it, she actually started to follow her and counted how many times that she called the child stupid. 58 times. She called the kid stupid just in, in all day. She was so bothered by it because really when you say that to someone over and over again, you are setting before them a trajectory, of an, an, an idea of their identity. If you're saying that they're worthless, then they're going to begin to look at themselves that way. So we have to understand and look at people the way God values them. To understand that they are image bearers. And we are to treat and interact and speak to people that way. And that includes, by the way, online. And what you post and what you say. One of the things that I went to different schools, I've gotten education, and I don't remember ever taking a class about policing people's Facebook profiles. And I've had to do that. I've gotten calls from people saying, look what so-and-so said about somebody online. Everybody sees it. That's not how we are to behave. Why do we think that we have this, I mean, that we can be anonymous? 
we can have this anonymity when we're online. And we feel that we can say whatever we want. I actually saw this one video the other day. They were, it was this uh, kind of a funny video where they had these dogs barking at one another at the fence, and they were getting angrier and angrier. And it was one of those memes where it said, this is what it's like talking to people online and then seeing them in person. And the gate was starting to open, and the dogs moved away. <laughs> and that's what we are. We'll say stuff online, but when it comes interpersonal, we want to pull back. But we need to be the same place that we are in our online presence that we have in our everyday lives. Why would you say something online that you're not willing to say when you're interacting with other people? We have to understand the power of our words. They can be problematic in every single facet of our lives. So much so that the, the Bible talks time and time again about the power of our words. Just do a cursory reading of Proverbs and you'll see it. You can see it in James. You can see it in Peter. Peter refers to it. He actually kind of lays it out and he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days... Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He lays it out. Because that's the power of our words. Of what we say to one another. How to, to, and, and not only to tear other people down, but to build ourselves up. We do. We want to pull people down so we can build ourselves up. We want to find a fault in others that we can validate ourselves in our own identity. But we have to recreate and understand our identity is not found in others' validation or rejection, but in the person of Christ and in him alone. And he is the one who is to speak into our lives. And we have to remember that because words are not only problematic, but they are powerful. They are powerful. Look back at verse 4 of James chapter 3. Look at the ships also. James is using this as an illustration. Although they are large and driven by strong winds. Yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Meaning it's small, but it's mighty. It's powerful to affect your life for good or for bad. Consider this story. One day a teacher asked her students to list the names of the other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. Then she told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down. It took the remainder of the class period to finish their assignment, and as the students left the room, each one handed in the papers. That Saturday, the teacher wrote down the name of each student on a separate piece of paper and listed what everyone else had said about that individual. On Monday... She gave each student his or her list. Before long, the entire class was smiling. Really? She heard whispered. I never knew that, meant, that I meant anything to anyone. And I didn't know that others liked me so much. Were most of the comments. No one ever mentioned those papers in class again. And the teacher never found out if they discussed them after that class or with their parents. But it didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students were happy with themselves and with one another. And that group of students moved on like they always do. But several years later, one of the students was, uh, was killed in Vietnam, and his teacher attended the funeral of that special student. She had never seen a serviceman in a military coffin before. He looked handsome, mature. The church was packed with his friends. One by one, those who loved him took a last walk by the coffin. The teacher was the last one to, to walk by the coffin, and as she stood there, one of the soldiers who acted as a pallbearer came up to her. He goes, were you Mark's math teacher? He asked. She nodded, yes. Then he said, Mark talked about you a lot. After the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates were together for a luncheon. Mark's mother and father were also there, wanting to speak with his teacher. 
We want to show you something, his father said, taking a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. The teacher knew, without looking, that the papers were the ones on which she had listed all the good things each of Mark's classmates had said about them. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. All of Mark's former classmates started to gather around. Charlie smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put, this, put his in our wedding album. I have mine, mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. Then Vicky, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, took out her wallet, and showed her worn and frazzled list to the group. I carry this with me at all times. Vicky said, without bat- batting an eyelash, she continued, I think we all saved our lists. Tears rolled down the eyes of the humble teacher. We encounter so many people in our lives, and it's precious joy to see the good in all those journeys. What a great story. It's the power of our words. Not just what we say, but what we communicate to other people, and they are valued. And we all know we need that. As we look for identity, as we look to find out who we truly are, and we have others speak to us to validate to us something special about us, that's great. But as, as followers of Christ, our greatest identity shaper is him. And he tells us we are valued, that we are loved, we are forgiven. He gives himself for us. See, the words that were written that day influenced each one of those students. Words convey meaning, and meaning shapes identity for good or for bad. And in some cases, Our words are used to make great boasts about who we are or who we believe we are. Look at verse 5 with me. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts, brags, promotes of great things. We boast, exalt ourselves, tell how much we can do or how talented or how great we are. You ever done that on Facebook or Instagram? I'm amazed at how many people want to show the best part of their life. Matter of fact, there's new even psychological issues that are coming out because of social media. Because now people are trying to post this stuff about themselves, and the reality is, is they're posting what's best, absolute best, even if it takes 25, 30 minutes, sometimes even hours. One uh, Instagram model talked about how she gets the perfect shot. She says, the shot that you see actually took almost 200 takes for me to get perfectly right to convey this perfect world in which I am trying to show to other people. And we do that online. We do that. We want to make ourselves look great, really talented. I like how the Babylon Bee, which is a Christian satirical periodical, I like what it said recently, just this past week. It said, uh, (laughs) he said said this, or the Babylon Bee said this. um, It had the headline, Man Not Nearly As Important As Twitter Profile Suggests. Man, that's good. Because we do. We all think that we're great. We always want to post our, our best part of who we are. We want people to acknowledge us because really it's become a source of pride. That's what our words do. We want to boast about how great we are. One young man I saw recently posted a photo of himself looking really tough and strong. And a friend of him, friend of him asked why he did it. And he said, because I, I want, and this is a man who claims to be a follower of Christ. He's in church. He says, because I want people to know not to bloop with me. So he does. He just wants to make this boast of how strong and how powerful he is. He wants to be intimidating to other people. He wants to show off. And it's really a source of pride. That's what our words are. It's a boasting about who we are to get other people to acknowledge our greatness and validate this image that we have in ourselves. But that is not the image that God wants for us. 
If we're to have, we're following a suffering servant who had no place to lay his head, who died at the peak of his age at 33 years of age, and who gave his life as a ransom for many, then why do we make such boasts about ourselves and try to gain such followings? I've seen so many pastors do this. Actually, I got to visit with two pastors this past week. And I said, you know, your ministry will be a success if you care not for trying to be a celebrity pastor. He said, I'm, I'm so confused. I said, don't worry about any of that other stuff. Just follow Jesus and shepherd people and live your life before an audience of one and everything else will take care of itself. But if you're out there just to write books and get people to acknowledge how great you are, then you're going to fail because that's not what God's called you to do. Jesus never calls you to write books. Now, I mean, you can write books if he's, you might have that on your heart, that desire. But I'm saying is he's called you to be faithful to use your gifts and talents in the way that he has seen fit. But if you think you're out there just to be famous, you have the wrong understanding of what Jesus came and did. Because really, we see here, and James is warning us that our tongues are a source of pride. Words come from a very small organ but it makes great boasts. As verse 5 shows us, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. This is a very fascinating verse. It's packed. The tongue appoints itself as a world of unrighteousness among its members. It is, in essence, the, the lowest, uh, as they say about water, it finds the place of least resistance. And where our sinful nature most exhibits itself is coming out of our little tongue. And the tongue, more than any other organ, has the power to realize its potential to do harm. So we see here that it is... Uh, it's appointed as a world of unrighteousness among its members. And the world, of course, is this present state of affairs or scheme of things organized on the basis of man's sinfulness, hostile to God, rejecting Christ. It's a world characterized by falling short of God's righteous standard, but it goes further. See, the tongue makes itself available as the focal point of all that unrighteousness within us. The enemy agent within God's rightful kingdom, a ready tool at the disposal of God's enemy, as one commentator said. James wants us to understand that our words can be a destructive force. They can be a destructive force. We have to understand this verse in its near context. James began talking about how strict teachers are going to be held accountable to what they teach. And knowing this, we can see that James is showing the result of the false teacher's words. Their words were like a disastrous fire that unleashed a world of righteousness affecting those all around. One that is opposed to God, extending the thought. Our words, we can see our words can destroy and notice that the tongue is set among our members. The word of the t- this wording of the term set has been variously translated and as is placed in the NRSV, re- represented in the REB, occupying in the uh, today's English version or the New Jerusalem Bible is just is. But James uses the same verb form in James 4.4 where it's a middle and has the meaning it makes oneself. It's saying there that it's a destructive force, but it actually has the opposite effect, not just hurting other people, but it hurts yourself in the process. See, we make rash promises. We say things to make ourselves look better than we are. We gossip and slander about others, but we're really hurting ourselves in the process. And by giving ourselves over to our hate, we alienate ourselves and hurt others in the long run. 
Now, I'm running short of time, so I'm going to try to go through the last part of this outline rather quickly. And while we do hurt ourselves, we have to realize that our words harm other people. They harm other people. Matter of fact, we don't even realize how much harm that it uh, does to us. There's a story that Ray Pritchard, a pastor, tells about a woman who said something about her neighbor that was untrue. And the word spread around the village as one person told another, but soon the truth uh, came out. What could the woman do? She went to see the village pastor, and the pastor gave her some strange instructions. He said, take a bag full of feathers and place one feather on the doorstep of each person who heard the untrue story you told. Then go back a day later, pick up the feather, and bring the bag back to me. So the woman did as the pastor said, but when she went back to pick up the feathers, nearly all of them were gone. And when she went back to the pastor, he said, she said, Father, I did as you said, but when I went back to the wind that went back to get the feathers, the wind had blown the feathers away, and I could not get them back. And the pastor said, So it is with careless words. Once they're spoken, they cannot be taken back. You may ask for forgiveness for what you said, but you cannot take your words back. The damage has already been done. We have to be careful what we say. It's not just that we play fast and loose with the truth. Sometimes we tell 80% of the truth and conveniently forget part of the story. Sometimes we tell all of the truth we know, but the part we don't know changes the whole picture. Sometimes we tell the truth, but in such a way as to make someone look stupid. Sometimes we just plain lie. Any way you slice it, it's gossip, it's hurtful. We have to be careful with what we say. We need to ask ourselves three questions before we repeat a story. First of all, is it kind? Secondly, is it true? Thirdly, is it necessary? Is it kind, is it true, and is it necessary? There wouldn't be any gossip if we used those three questions before speaking. Now, at the end of verse 6, James shows us where the tongue comes from. He says it's set on fire by hell. He's saying that the root of our tongue really comes from the, our sinful nature, and it's really set on fire. It's from hell itself. It's not just that our tongue is anti-God and for the world, but it's actually from Gehenna, which is the everlasting punishment, uh, conscious torment of those in the afterlife. That's the Greek word that's being used there. It's a place of fire. James wants us to understand that our tongues can actually be tools for the devil. Words are serious, and if we fail to curb our gossip, rid profanity from our mouths, we're actually agents of Satan. This, there is this practice now where, I, again, I hear Christians swearing casually, Jesus didn't die so that we could claim to be born from above, all the while furthering the kingdom of Satan with our mouths. See, the tongue is ultimately not about our tongue, but about, the tongue is simply a representative of what is in our heart. And that's why it's really a disclosure of the heart. Disclosure of the heart. Jesus talks about that in Mark chapter 7, verse 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. He's addressing people that would be defiled by eating certain foods. But the things that come out of a person are what really defile him. When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Really, the tongue is just disclosing what's in the heart. James tells us that no one can tame the tongue. As we read in verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and Sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Is it true that we, can know, we, we can't tame the tongue? Is that what James is really saying? Because if that's the case, then why do we just close our Bibles and give up? 
No, he's saying that in our natural selves, we can't tame the tongue. We can't speak it. We have to have the Spirit of God help us to be able to direct because the Spirit of God is giving us, or a fruit of the Spirit is actually self-control. We have the ability to watch what we say. We have to be on guard against it. So the first thing that we to do, if we are to really understand and master this, we have to understand or rely on the Spirit of God. This understanding that it really truly discloses the heart, and if we're to really master it, then we have to rely on the Spirit of God. Secondly, and again, I'm out of time here, we have to realize our tendencies, our tendency to speak. Understand what it is that we have this tendency to say to other people. I know what I have a tendency to say, and I have to watch that and be careful of it when I get in certain groups of people because I have to understand that it is a restless evil. That's what James says in verse 8. It's restless It always wants to come out. It's never just completely mastered and done with, completely trained. But it's always this restless evil full of deadly poison. We have to be able to realize this tendency that it's going to keep fighting against us again and again and again. And then finally in verse 9, he says here, and he gives a rhetorical question. He says this, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring forth from the same opening, both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What he's saying there is, is that you can't have fresh water and salt water come from the same place. You can't have a grapevine produce figs, or a fig tree produce grapes. In other words, if you are truly a believer in Christ, then you shouldn't be doing these things. You should seek to put it to death, to mortify the flesh, You have to let it die. Kill it. Because if you're a believer in Christ, you're not to have that. You're not to have this type of speech and this type of speech. You have to remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. What I mean by that is this. You have to remember that Jesus died to set you free from that restless evil, that poison. To give you a new life and a new heart and a new way of speaking. And we have to remember that we are his. We were purchased with a price. And behave as one of his. As the Titanic was going down, the captain of the ship, Captain Smith, said to his crew over the megaphone, Be British. See, he wanted them to die with dignity, to exemplify what Britain represented to the world. And we are to be Christian in our speech, to realize that our words need to match the Christ we proclaim. Words matter. Your words matter. You can leave a legacy to those around you. Richard E. Simmons III in his book, The True Measure of a Man, said, We are seldom taught that the key to experiencing a meaningful life is to make a difference in the lives of others. But that's what God has called us to do. And if we're to make a difference in the lives of others, we have to use our words to build up, not to break down, to heal, not to hurt. Let's not spend them on all kinds of gossip, profanity, slander, half-truths, or put-downs. Rather, let us bless those around us, making a difference in their life by building them up, so that they might see and know the Christ that was crucified for them, that died on the cross for their sins, and that through his resurrection of the dead, by placing their faith in him, they can die to that and have new life and forgiveness through him. Let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm amazed at the power of the tongue and how often so many of us struggle with that day in and day out. As the scripture has said, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so often we do curse those around us We curse them under our breath. We curse them in our hearts. We curse them when we're around other people. Lord, forgive us for that evil. May we instead seek to bless, to build up, 
to use our lives and our mouths. May they be seasoned with salt that we might uh, truly bless those around us, that they too might know who Jesus is and be drawn to the Savior that we proclaim, not just with our words, but with our lives. May you glorify your name in our lives and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.